0: to On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair.
1: On Air is back for another week. I'm Israel Fair, staff editor at The Athletic. He's Alex Blair, former feature producer at Hockey Night in Canada. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Israel Fair and Alex's handle is at TheAlexBlair. No guest on today's show, uh, but we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to hit all the big topics this week in Canucks land and, and a little bit beyond, Alex. So uh, let's uh, let's get started.
0: Yeah, let's, there, there's a lot to talk about. It was a, <laughs> let me say, it was a wild week in Canuckland, which I think everybody knows. Uh, Izzy and I are going to do our best to kind of walk through sort of what we know, why some of the things that you saw earlier in the week uh, happened, were reported, and uh anyway, we'll kind of unpack all of that. We'll get to um we'll get to the first round of the playoffs and we'll get to some other uh off-ice NHL news. But I did want to start, Izzy, by addressing sort of the 650, I don't even want to say it was news this week, but I think I had a bunch of people reach out to me um and asking us about are we no longer affiliated with Sportsnet six fifty? And I think there's I, I just kind of wanted to clear the air a little bit because I think there was a little bit of a mis misconception. Um, for regular listeners of the podcast, you and I, we like this podcast hasn't been on Sportsnet 650 yep. for six weeks now. This is our sixth episode of digital only, and as we kind of alluded to at the time, uh, and we, to be honest, we we should have maybe gone into more detail. Um, this show, Izzy and I never worked for Sportsnet 650. This was always, we were sort of affiliated, I guess, Izzy? Like yeah, kind
1: of- I, I think we had a, a handshake agreement to, to do a local show. Um, I have a, yeah. a, a freelance agreement with Sportsnet. So when I appear as a guest co-host, as I have in the past for the last number of years, I paid for that, but I... Have a full time job with the Athletic, so I'm not I'm not an employee of Rogers or an employee of Sportsnet as well. And our show was not uh, a fully this you know, not to get too into the weeds on on how <laughs> radio works and and uh, weekend shows work, but yeah, uh, the shows that matter uh, on the air are generally the shows during the week. Those shows that start anywhere between five and six in the morning and run anywhere between six and seven at night, uh, and you get your average station, three or four shows. Uh, weekends are a bit of a different animal. There's uh, different opportunities, uh, you know, collaborations. And uh, we had talked to Sportsnet for, our Sportsnet 650 in particular, and, and their boss, Craig McEwen, for a while, uh, prior to the pandemic, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, about giving us a chance to to do a two-person show on the weekend. I had done a solo yeah. show on, uh, on the weekends for Sportsnet prior to i guess this would have been the 2018 2019 season i did a number of saturday and sunday shows by myself and it's four hours solo with uh, you know there's there's a producer board up there uh to bounce ideas off of but still it's it's a lot to do and um that is unrelated to alex and i's uh conversations about wanting to do a show but helps inform, I think where I'm, I was coming yep. from with uh, look, they have opportunities on the weekend. Mm-hmm. We, uh, you know, agreed on a lot of different stuff
0: and, and they didn't, yes. and they wanted more local programming, you know, like they, and listen, like we've talked at length and it's no secret that the, you know, the broadcast industry, um, you know, financially is, is having a tough go of it. Um, you know, Izzy and I first met, we started pitching, putting together a show. We were both interested in doing a show, whether that was on radio or podcast, like we weren't, I don't think we really cared, but we saw an upside to radio because it would, um, you know, connect us with a larger fan base uh, to begin with, as opposed to the crowded podcast platform. And, you know, we met with Craig and I think Craig was interested in doing, you know, having more local content and, and serving the local community with more local content, as opposed to, you know, syndicated CBS radio out of New York or what have you. And, um, yeah, as Izzy said, we were supposed to, um, we were actually supposed to launch right before the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic hit, uh, everything kind of got put on hold. And then, you know, Craig came back to us at the start of August when the playoffs bubble was going to start. And, and anyway, we started doing the show once a week on Saturdays. Um, but again, it was, you know, Izzy and I were doing our show. Um, it aired on Sportsnet, but, you know, Sportsnet didn't tell us what to say. Sportsnet didn't have... Yeah, like it was just, we were doing our own show. Um, I'm trying to think, two months ago, Izzy, um, Craig came to us and just said, look, um, Rogers has like a contractual agreement to air Blue Jays games on Saturdays, which we're going to pose a lot of conflicts with the Saturday and Sunday schedules. And our show was going to be probably the most affected, I think, or our time slot from 12 to 2 Pacific time. So we thanked Craig and he, and listen, he was great. Cause he said, look, I can, we can move this show around. We can do different schedules. Um, he, you know, I think he was open to us staying on, on the show, but he also wanted to give us, you know, a bunch of notice that the regular, um, the regular schedule was going to have to change just because of Sportsnet's, um, contractual obligation to air Blue Jays games. So we talked about it. Um, I didn't feel strongly either way, um, and to be to be fair to Izzy here, Izzy was the one that felt strongly at that point. He said, "You know, like let's keep a consistent show. We want to do a show each week. Let's just go digital only for the summer, and do a podcast." And so I said, "Yep, that's that's cool with me." Um, we talked to Craig about that. He was great with it, and you know, we at that point I would say we just sort of agreed that um, we would revisit the live show um, potential for October. At the end of the Blue Jay season, um, sort of start a hockey season, which made a lot of sense. Um, And Craig also sort of just said, like, look, I'll I'll sort of see if there's some some slots where I can run your podcast still on 650 because at that point, I think everything was working fairly well. Um, We've kept in regular contact with Craig. Um, We have a good relationship with him. And, um, yeah, the only thing that changed this week was – I was just asked to take 650 off my bio. And so I did so the show hadn't been on 650 for six weeks. Um, And as far as I know, like we're, we're still in contact with Craig. There's, there may or may not be a possibility down the road, but there was a lot Mm -hmm. of people that had reached out to me sort of thinking that there had been some sort of big change or that we had been removed from the air, so to speak. Uh, I know Izzy, a bunch of people reached out to you as well. And you and I knew why it happened, and listen, we—I don't think either of us were disappointed by it. You know, we just enjoy doing the show once a week, whether it's on podcast or whether it's on 650. Um, anyway, just wanted to sort of clarify that before we moved yeah, on. I just um, add
1: quickly, um, yeah, Sportsnet 650, Craig McEwen were very fair to us, uh, and that's that's oh, where completely. that's where we are at. Uh, as Alex said, we made the decision to go to podcast to maintain a consistent schedule, and yeah. Um, that's, that's that.
0: And I will say this, like th- this show from the beginning has been a product of Izzy and I, uh, nobody has told us what to say. We have had, you know, w- there was no financial motivation for us to follow party lines or anything like that. So, um, I, listen, I just thought that in the interest of full disclosure, we communicate exactly what transpired. You can make of it, you know, what you will. Um, uh, but that's, that's sort of what unfolded. And um, you know, we will continue to do this show, um, depending on, you know, whether it continues on podcasts, whether it ends up being, you know, affiliated with 650 again, whether it gets affiliated somewhere else. Like Izzy and I have no idea. Um, we're we're just gonna continue to do the show and and hope you enjoy listening. So let's get on to the Canucks. Yeah. Should we shift? Um why don't we go in chronological order? So We should acknowledge we're recording this out quarter to two on Friday. Uh, Head coach Travis Green, general manager Jim Benning met with the media about an hour ago or finished up about an hour ago. And it felt sort of like the culmination of a season, but it also was the culmination of a very interesting week in Vancouver uh, Canuck land. Um,
1: Where do you want to start? Um, Why don't we start with today, Friday, and go backwards? So today, okay, Friday, good. the official announcement of Travis Green's extension, uh, reported to be two years. Two years. And
0: yes, which they and Jim which Benning they and
1: Travis Green doing their end of season availability with reporters.
0: Was there anything that stood out to you? Was it? I, I've seen a lot of a lot of the reaction. Was has this changed your perception? Do you feel more confident in this management group going forward? Let me just start with sort of your feelings, Izzy, before we get into sort of the nitty gritty and why. Why overall, we feel the way no.
1: We uh, I will say what stood out to me the most is the Travis Green is back because of all the whispers mm-hmm. that that wasn't going to happen and how strongly he was um, in, in in wanting to to be back here, and we've discussed that. A fair bit over the last few weeks in terms of the potential market for Travis Green, um, his general feelings about the the organization, the roster, and um, yeah. And 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 that, you know, he, (laughs) he, as I've said a number of times, you've said similar things as well. Travis Green has got a pretty good grasp on the perception of him. Of this situation and also of his value, I think he probably looked around the league. Uh, some, you know, some slots are getting uh, filled already. Others maybe not super attractive. Uh, others, you know, far from a guarantee that he would be the coach to get picked up. And uh, look, there are pieces on this team that he has worked with. Uh, there are players that he has relationships with. His relationship with the Canucks organization dates back prior to him being the head coach of the NHL team. And this is somewhere that now if, if he plays out the two years of his contract, he'll have been part of this organization for 10 years. So that's a pretty substantial amount of time. And uh, I think he's looking at it like this is an opportunity to really solidify um, his value, his place as, as an NHL head coach, which is is not an easy thing to
0: do. No, for sure. Um, I guess what I would add is that this is what I believe to be the case is that i I think that the Canucks um held a special place for Travis having grown up in in castlegar and and being connected with the province of British Columbia. And I do think that Travis likes the pieces that are in place on the ice, or at least the potential of where they're where they're headed. Um, that being said, I think the way that this season played out, uh, the clear dysfunction above Travis within management, within the dynamic between management and ownership, uh, I think raised a lot of questions. I think how they left Travis blowing in the wind literally until the 11th hour. Um, it's, I mean, not just Travis, anyone would have a problem with that and and feel disrespected. and, And quite frankly, they should, um, but when I look at it, my sense is, you know, Travis wanted more than a two-year deal at the beginning of this, and I don't think that they could agree on money. And in the end, Travis took a two-year deal. We don't exactly know what the money is, but, you know, it's it's led to believe at least the Canucks were starting around a number at like 1.5. I think Travis had started, you know, maybe pr- earlier in the year as high as 2.5. But it's clear that, you know, once Rod Brindamore signed for 1.8, that really sort of hurt the hurt the sort of the ceiling of where he was looking and I know now the debate is you know and, and maybe we'll we'll hear this in the you know later today or the coming days. It was sort of whether Travis got to two million or you know is it, it mm-hmm. did he settle for less than two million? my my read on it is Travis looked around probably did some back channeling at the other jobs that are currently open that he would have interest in. And currently there are two that, you know, I think Seattle and New York would be of interest, but I don't think there were any, you know, quote unquote guarantees that, you know, if he was to leave here and leave the offer that was on the table, that he would definitely get those jobs. And I think it's, what's clear to Travis is that while he was under consideration and in the mix, there was likely, um, there was likely a more preferred candidate and whether or not that candidate could come to agreement with those teams would would dictate whether travis would get an opportunity elsewhere and so i think you know you look at it and think i've got a job in front of me it's less than i want but you know in two years with what the team is on the ice i can continue to show what i can do as a coach and i can get what i think i what i deserve in a couple of years whether that's in vancouver or elsewhere we'll have to wait and see but I think Travis decided that it was better to be a coach behind an NHL bench than take the chance he may not be coaching behind an NHL bench next year. That's, yep. that's look, my read on the situation.
1: Uh, a healthy Elias Patterson makes a difference. Uh, Quinn Hughes, another year of experience, makes a difference. Uh, a goalie makes a difference. And Thatcher Demko, who uh, put together a really strong year, and that's even with uh, you know kind of a slow start and, and not a great – run up until about the month of March. So there are pieces there, I think, to put a bow on the Travis Green part of this. There are pieces, there are players here where, again, like you just said, Alex, he can show what he can do as an NHL head coach. Uh, These are still hurdles, I guess, that he's, like he's established himself to a certain level, but there, um, and I think that there's, outside of winning a Stanley Cup, there are, these incremental gains that coaches can make in the way that they're they're viewed and perceived. Yeah. I go back to that first season where uh, then Maple Leafs coach Mike Babcock has some really strong comments in praising Travis Green and the way that uh, he coached this group and and the line matching that he was doing against the Toronto team that was better than the Vancouver roster. And those are, those are small things, but that sticks with people within the game. And I'm sure he looks at the, the core pieces that are here right now and sees an opportunity for him to kind of continue climbing those steps. And
0: the, and the only other thing that I would add is he, is that, you know, and it, I wouldn't say it's been taken out of context, but so many things on Twitter become polarizing. I, while I don't think they're the, while I don't think they're the entire reason I do think it being a Canadian team during the pandemic with all the restrictions that, you know, we had to follow in Canada made for a very difficult season for Canadian teams and Canadian players. I think you add on top of that, the COVID situation that unfolded in Vancouver, that made for a real challenge. And I think the third thing is, and I know it's been talked about, some people roll their eyes. The schedule to start the season, in hindsight, was brutal on the Canucks. And once once they kind of got out to such a bad start, I think it was like getting punched in the face, and they didn't really know how to react very well. And so much of their core is young. That I think it really rattled them. Now, listen, if those things didn't happen, do I still think that this organization would be, you know, would be in an amazing place? No, but I do think that those three factors had a major role to play in the Canucks disappointing on the ice season this year. And, you know, I think Travis looks at that and thinks, you know, he can see as well where things are going with the vaccine, that there's a likelihood that they'll have a more normal year next year. And as I said, I think he thinks it's better to be behind the bench of a Canadian team or behind mm-hmm. the bench of an NHL team rather than gambling with the chance that maybe he's the odd man out and he'd be waiting on the sidelines. Okay. For a Jim job.
1: Benning was next to him uh, during this avail. Uh, there was, as there has been all season, I think I sort of laughed about it on last week's podcast where it was uh, we were ramping up again that Jim Benning was going to be on the way out. Uh, my feeling was we did this dance earlier this year. I'll, I guess I'll see it when I. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. And today on Friday, I saw Jim Benning do a (laughs) end of season avail for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, You alluded to it earlier, Um, as it tends to be the case after these kind of uh, news conferences. The overarching question, what kind of message was it? How did the fans react to it? What, What did you think about what you heard from mostly Jim Benning, the general manager today?
0: It was really clear to me that the Canucks and, you know, Jim Benning was the guy trying to execute the message, but we also saw the letter that Francesco Aquilini has sent out to season ticket holders. There was a lot of PR and trying to shape the narrative today. And you know what, to be honest, that's what you would expect, but let's be very clear here. Um, At this point, words are PR actions are what are going, actions is what is going to matter. And I think that's where they said a lot of things today that, you know, you could say, okay, that's positive, but it'll, it'll really determine what they actually do and what their actions are, whether that backs up what they said. They also didn't say a lot of things today. So, you know, I know there's a big sort of sense that there wasn't much of a plan. um, And I would agree with that, you know, like it's, it's unclear to me sort of what their, you know, long-term vision is for this team, but you know, it was very clear that Jim wanted to try and repair um, the messaging with the fans. You know, he had that opening statement and there were also points where he, you know, numerous times sort of pointed the, the responsibility at himself. And one of the things that came out very early that I thought was most notable was that there was an acknowledgement that they were going to get the financial support, that they were going to be able to execute trades. They were going to be able to execute execute buyouts, which was something that has been reported they were not right. able to do last year. You know, owners, ownership did not sign off that they could do that. Now, that's a really interesting one to me, Izzy, because I will be curious. That, listen, as I said, the words of that are great. You would hope that the general manager has all available avenues in front of him. What I would say, though, is that I if if the only buyout used is on Jake Vertanen and if the trades that are used are JT Miller and mm-hmm. or Nate Schmidt, I think you could make the argument that today Jim was just hedging because I think it's very clear that the Canucks have to buy out Jake Vertanen. You know, they, I don't think that they can bring him back considering his off the ice legal yep. uh, situation that's occurring and then from a from a trade standpoint we've heard whispers this week you know i have been saying this for at least a couple of weeks the dysfunction in this organization had crept into the locker room and it doesn't surprise me that a couple of veterans who have come from other organizations in JT Miller and Nate Schmidt are the are the ones that are being rumored to sort of think maybe i want to play elsewhere because i think they've played for other organizations they know uh, they have a higher expectation and quite frankly, I think what they saw from this organization this year was unacceptable in their mind. And I'm not sure they want to be a part of it going forward. Now, I think it's been a long year for everyone. So, you know, I, I heard Elliot say yesterday that, it, you know, I, it would be wise for everybody to take a couple of weeks here and decompress, which yeah. I think is, is really smart. But if Miller and Schmidt end up getting moved and the Canucks sell those as trades, I think there will also be a lot of eyebrows that, you know, we may never hear that they demanded a trade, but that, you know, I think there will be a belief that they asked to be moved and that the Canucks are trying to, you know, quote unquote, save face uh, by moving those guys. If the buyouts and trades go beyond those three people, then I think there's some validity to what they said today and that maybe ownership is backing this up. But if it's only those three players involved in buyouts and trades I would argue that, you know that's a bit of a mm-hmm. PR spin today from from the organization saying that they're going to use these because I think they have to. Right. They may yeah. be forced. It seems
1: it it seems like the momentum from that uh, from that angle has been has been picking up. Um, I guess what's interesting to me about the way that Jim Benning decided to handle or or was, you know, prepared to handle questions today was uh, very similar to what we've heard. In the past, I feel like I've I've heard this press conference before. I can't say I was particularly inspired, um, you know, to give credit to the question asker. It was uh, Jason Bruff from Sportsnet 650, Halford and Bruff asked uh, a a very direct question to Jim Benning about uh, which part of his job does he feel like he could improve at or his management team could get better at. And his answer was. That they're moving the American Hockey League team to Abbotsford and that will make things better. And to me, look, it's it, it, it's not easy to face these sort of questions. But uh, Patrick Johnson said it on our podcast last week. Jim Benning likes a couple of things very much about his job. He likes building hockey teams and he likes scouting hockey players. I don't think he's particularly interested in the other aspects uh, that would come with uh, modern-day big business leadership, and that's uh, yeah. that's that's kind of that that's the elephant in the room, <laughs> and it has been for a long time. I mean, I just don't know how he can for answer sure. that question. I, it I, was a direct question. There was no, there was again to give rough credit. There was no, there was no wiggle room. He did not give. Uh, much wiggle room and Jim Benning just decided to say that the American Hockey League team moving to Abbotsford and having the ability to work, those players having the ability to work with some Vancouver staffers and the strength coaches was going to, you know, be a a game changer for the organization. That's that's not what the question was. Um, A a tough question and maybe one that uh, he would need more time to reflect on, but to just immediately go to, look, this is what we're doing, you know, look over here. Uh, that was about all I needed to hear.
0: Yeah, there there were a lot of moving pieces. There were a lot of distractions this week. But if you look at a a really macro look at this organization, the leaders are still Francesco Aquilini and Jim Benny. And that, to me, remains the biggest concern. Um, the impact and important, like, listen, take this outside of hockey. The impact and importance of leadership and the effect that that has on everyone below you in an organization is huge. And that's why leaders are so sought after. They're, you know, Not everyone can be a leader. And it's also why they cost so much money to get, you know, if you're a good leader, you can demand a lot of money because they are so essential. And... For as much as, you know, and we're going to get into the Sedins here in a second, as much as the Sedins are joining and listen, having Travis Green back is good because I, you know, I also was not, if Travis Green wasn't back, I assume that they were going with a cheap, young, um, inexperienced head coach. So I look at Travis Green and think I'm, I'm happy he's back. The situation that, you know, you kind of bungled this all year long and you were only able to sign him at the 11th hour under a contract that clearly is not what he wanted. You know, that sort of leaves me with a lot to be desired as well. But let's just focus like Travis back is a good thing. But at the top of this organization, the people leading this organization still remain the same. And that to me is a big problem. So for as much as, you know, the movement we saw below and smoke screens here and, you know, some former alumni who are really well respected, maybe coming into the organization being a good thing. At the top, that still remains the biggest problem, and it's hard to sort of be able to look past that when you know that hasn't changed, and that has been the problem for the last seven years.
1: Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I guess you know, Groundhog Day with this uh, with this organization and with this hockey team, and.
0: I, so we, we were talking the other day, so there was, we've talked about this a lot, about sort of 10 years ago versus now, and sort of the respect of the way this organization carried themselves. And I saw you, I saw Thomas Drance, your colleague at the Athletic, had a, an interesting note yesterday that 10 years ago, the San Antonio Spurs yep. and the Tampa Rays from Major League Baseball and from the NBA had both reached out to the Canucks to sort of figure out what they were doing with sports science. And because the Canucks were that progressive, they weren't just progressive within the NHL. They were progressive within North American sports. And, you know, the San Antonio Spurs and the Rays are not two sort of backwater organizations like they are progressive, you know, in and amongst themselves. And, and it's, it just sort of really highlighted. And, you know, you saw the quotes this week as well about this organization trying to figure out like what had gone wrong, you know, how they had fallen so far from 10 years ago. And I just sort of, I, I laughed because at that point, they had hired Mike Gillis and they let him do his job. And who's sitting 50 miles away in Victoria, you know, not without a job in hockey, Mike Gillis. And yet, you know, I've, you know, as much as I think he should be considered, I have no reason to believe that the Canucks have seriously considered him considered you know seriously considered looking back at him and yet they're asking this question like how do we get back to 10 years ago and that the architect of the organization 10 years ago was right there and I just to me that's where you know what I hear publicly and and what they tell us versus what they actually do and their actions don't line up and you know they try to they tried the PR thing today we'll see what what actions happen going forward. But until what they say and their actions line up, they are just eroding the confidence in this fan base. And it's pretty low right now. Believe me, it can get lower. And we may we mm-hmm. may see where that goes. But that, to me, I thought was just fascinating is that, you know, it, the 10 years ago thing really picked up some steam this week, you know? like And it seemed like it was coming from ownership as well. Like, well, remember us 10 years ago? Like, we were great. Well, yes. <laughs> but what has changed since then? You know, ownership got a lot more hands on that has proven not to be a good thing. Um, the architect of 10 years ago is somebody who's right there that you don't want to talk to, you know, regardless of hiring him. What if you sat down and picked his brain? I mean, maybe Mike <laughs> wouldn't want to do that at this point. I don't know. But, you know, for as much as they want to get back to 10 years ago, they have an opportunity, but I don't see them actually taking the steps to do that. So that in a bigger picture, that's, that's concerning to me a little bit. Um, coaching staff, what did you make of, you know, they, I thought that they were very non-committal on organizational changes and there have been rumors out there this week that assistant GM John Weisbrod may be quote unquote the sacrificial lamb. And we've also heard the rumors about the Sedins, which I think we will need to get into in some depth, but, um, and also the coaching staff, most notably goaltending coach Ian Clark. Who many believe out of principle um, at this point is going to move on. What do you make of of what you're hearing on those fronts? And and as a fan, what do you want to hear? Or as somebody who watches, um, I mean, this I can... have no
1: info. I have no inside information on on any of that stuff. Uh, I would say just looking uh, in from the outside that in these situations, it's quite. Uh, Normal for uh, at least one coach to to get swapped. Uh, one of the assistants, Travis Green, gets an extension. Uh, when the team doesn't have success, it's pretty normal in in this uh, in this industry in the National Hockey League for uh, for at least one change to be made. Uh, so that would not surprise me in the slightest. Uh, the Ian Clark thing has been reported on a lot. Uh, he is someone that's had a lot of attention paid to him. In particular, uh, for what you said, made that principled idea that the commitment wasn't made nearly early enough and that um, he's you know, confident yeah. in his abilities and uh, wants to, to work from a, a solid base, a solid foundation. Um, yeah, I don't, again, I don't have any inside info there, but uh, that seems to be the case. And no. I mean, I think the Sadin's possibility is the, the big fancy one for a couple of reasons, obviously on the surface, they are the greatest players in franchise history. They are incredibly respected across the league. And so there's a lot of validity there, but then there's also the flip side of, um, of uh, you said it earlier, a smoke screen or, uh, you know, uh, don't, you know, uh, a magic trick, if you will, of go and talk to these guys. Everyone loves them. Uh, Meanwhile, don't pay attention to, to all the other issues. So there's, there are a lot of, um, there are some really strong points on both sides of, of the skepticism or the optimism when it comes to the sedines. And if, if that does happen, it would be, uh, you know, interesting to see exactly how that slots. It, It does seem like based on the reporting that's been done that, uh, and this is par for the course for those guys that they're not, insistence on, we need to be at the top of the franchise. We need to be at the top of the organization and calling all the shots. Uh, I think those guys are both incredibly uh, confident in their abilities.
0: I think they want the But opposite. they
1: also, um, yeah, they value team about as much as anybody.
0: Really quickly, let, let's get into the Sedins. My last, I just want to make one final point on, on Ian Clark. I, I would argue, I don't even know if it's possible at this point. But given where this team is, I'm not sure they could get a bigger PR win right now than if they could re- re-sign Ian Clark. Because I think there is a perception that he's gone. I think there rightfully is the perception that he is a best-in-class coach, um, and that's something that this organization, top to bottom, you know, doesn't have in a lot of places. Uh, and that's not ne- meant to be a a drastic criticism of anyone, but you know, those rare best-in-class in your field roles. I would argue that Ian Clark may be one of the only members of the Canucks organization that they have, and um, it'll be interesting to see if if they can somehow get him to agree to um, to come back. You know, we heard Thatcher Demko earlier this week, basically pleading with the organization to do what they can to to bring him back. This the Sedin one is really interesting to me, and I think that they were. Let me ask you this: Do you think anything that's played out this week? How they were sort of thrown into the news on Tuesday afternoon and the subsequent, you know, them being in the crossfire of this organization. Do you think that that has given them second thoughts, cold feet about maybe what they sort of hope to have from this organization and then sort of a harsh reality of, oh, this is actually maybe how this is going to go? I'd be
1: surprised. I think that those guys have a pretty good grasp on on things. I, I do think that they would probably look to the optimistic side, um, but yeah. I, I think the key there is their own humility and understanding that uh, they're they're not going to be coming in and doing a flashy sales job. They're they I from the way that I would perceive it, are going to be confident in themselves confident in the work that they can do open to alternatives and open to change. Um, And I, I just, I don't, I don't foresee the worst case scenario that a lot of people put out there mostly on social media, that it would be purely a PR optics thing that they would be purely getting used. Uh, I think that they have, Mm -hmm. you know, that they would have a better grasp on that situation and that, I I I can't. Yeah, that, go ahead.
0: That that said though, and and I agree with that. I wonder if though they so I guess Tuesday was clearly a I don't want to say a smokescreen, but they were used. You know, like that mm-hmm. was fed to Darren Drager, and so they all of a sudden became, they were used as a smokescreen to a degree. Not that it wasn't legitimate, and that I do think that everything they were talking about, but for it to be. They hadn't agreed on what the roles were going to be. And it was clear that based on, you know, the reporting in the morning and like the possible changes that are coming, it was really interesting that that, you know, them joining the organization was dropped to Drager in the afternoon. And so while I, I think there's more than them just being used as a PR play, it's clear that the organization is still going to use them to some degree as you sure. know, good PR. So I see it as, you know, (laughs) I just wonder if that was a bit of a a reality check for them where they were like, we've heard a lot of good things. I do think they have a real Mm -hmm. interest in getting into the game, but they were also close with Trevor Linden. They saw how that played out. You know, they they've played on Olympic teams with Daniel Alfredson and, you know, his attempt to join the senators under, you know, a a very mercurial Mm -hmm. owner in Eugene Melnick. And that, you know, I mean, how long was Alfie there? I think he yeah. he resigned very quickly because it was it was clearly not gonna work. So they would have talked to these people and like I said, I still expect the Sidines to join the organization. From what I've been told, they were okay joining right. the staff under Jim Benny. So like, you know, they understood that, you know, they had okay that if Jim returns, we will work under him. But I just wonder if this week has given them sort of cold feet. You know, they've had every reporter in the city <laughs> trying to call them for comments. They have very much been a talking point, which is not something that even in their playing days that they loved. they understood it. I just, I wonder if there was a bit of a reality this week of like, who? yeah, this is what this could be like in this city, you know, under this ownership group. And, you know, I, I don't know anything. I'm just, just speculating, especially as how it's dragged on a little bit. Um, and maybe they're trying to distance themselves from today's press conference, or the organization is, and we'll get to that in a second. Because I tweeted something earlier in the week that got a lot of attention. That you know I wanted to um, wanted okay. to clarify a little bit. So
1: let's do that. Yeah, yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay. Do you want to do? Okay. So, though I tweeted, I can't remember what day it was—Wednesday or Thursday—that, um, and I don't have it in front of me. But something along the lines of I expected Daniel and Henrik to be sitting alongside Jim Benning at the at the end of season press conference. And listen, I didn't think this was big news. Um, you know, I had talked to a bunch of people in and around the team uh, during the week. And it wasn't said as if it was, um, it wasn't told to me as if like this was the plan. It was just sort of talked about in the sense like this is likely what will happen. You know, this is sort of how this organization is operated. And I didn't, to be honest, I sort of, even though I didn't love it, um, I kind of understood it. I was like, you know, there's, they're trying to sell a very unsellable product right now. And, you know, if they've got these guys joining the team, which they were happy to sort of drop out there earlier in the week, I can see them sort of putting them next to Jim. And as it, as it was explained to me just from a, you know, and if, if you haven't worked in the media or, you know, how press conferences work, there's only an allotted amount of time And the Sedins are so respected by the media that it, you know, there was that sense that maybe it would soften the tone of the press conference, which I think is totally fair. I think it may have. And the other thing I was told is, you know, if this is, the Sedins are as much a story that day as the end of season. And if this is the only availability, half of those questions will now be directed towards Daniel and Henrik and it'll sort of minimize the negativity that is surrounding this team. And I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, If I was in the Canucks PR, like, you know, it's probably what I would have done. I wouldn't have loved it, but I also probably wouldn't love a Canucks PR job right now because, you know, you're being asked to sell a very, <laughs> very unsellable product. But it, go- it really got picked up. And I will say that I'm not sure if this was the intention or not. But if, if, Canucks, if Canucks PR and if the Canucks organization were planning on doing that, I think it became very clear with the reaction to that tweet and reaction to it on radio that that was not the path to go down. And as we saw later in the week, um, you know, they had some other, they Mm -hmm. had somebody else to sit next to, to Jim Benny. They had Travis green. Um, I listen, I have no idea whether that had any bearing on, you know, motivation of, okay, if it can't be the sitting sitting next to Jim, we need somebody else. And I wonder, you know, I'm not saying it gave them a push to sign Travis green, but I don't think they wanted to have Jim sitting there by himself. Um, And this team needed some good PR to try and, to try and spin the narrative because when the news broke on Tuesday night that that Jim was coming back, according to Elliot Friedman, um, that that went over, (laughs) that went over like a tire (laughs) iron to the head for most of the Canucks fan base. And that was, as I, as I said, that was, I was getting notes from people. I don't even know around the league that had seen some of the stuff that I had been talking about or reporting. Uh, I got notes from people that I have met once or twice, but do not hear from regularly or have not heard from mm-hmm. uh, in, in quite some time. And it was, it wasn't just a shock to the fan base. I think it was a shock to many inside the organization. And I think it was a shock to many around the league because it was, like I said, it many people thought that it was just a fade accompli. Like they, there, there was no way they could bring them back. And I do think and I and I haven't seen this yet. I do think that the Aquilini's had looked at other options. I think they had considered other people. I think they, I think they looked at what that would look like. I think they looked at what that would look like from a cost perspective. But I don't think in the end. Uh, and there's a lot on the meeting on Monday with the family. I think they determined that for the cost of what it was going to cost to bring people in and also pay Jim out for two more years. And the candidates that they were likely to be able to bring in, they were prepared to move forward with Jim over that. But I do think that they considered um, other options. And it was only near the end and in that meeting on Monday that they determined that they were going to go okay, forward Okay,
1: so Jim. this week we learned a lot. There are still some lingering questions. What do you expect Uh, will transpire over the next few weeks as we head into an off season for this team that has the uh, expansion draft as part of it and a very abbreviated period between the entry draft and free agency and as you mentioned earlier the possibility for some trades are very real it seems with Mm -hmm. this team so what what do you expect to transpire
0: Well, let's just start the the very new future. I think we're going to get an indication one way or the other, whether the coaching staff is coming back. Um, and I say coaching staff sort of as a group without Ian Clark, because I think Ian Clark is sort of a separate decision unto himself. Uh, I think we're also going to hear in the very near future, possibly next week, about changes to the organization. I think that could come both in hockey operations. You know, we touched on earlier about the rumors around John Wisebrod. But I think also on, on the business side, I think this ownership, you know, there's, there's been rumors about quote unquote, a president. And as I said yesterday, to me, there's a, there's a big distinction between a club president and a sort of president of hockey operations. I think most of the fan base has been crying out for a president of hockey operations, somebody above, somebody above Jim Benny to sort of, you know, have their hands on the wheel, so to speak, and not, you know, have Jim driving the bus, but everything I've heard is that it's more likely to be somebody from the business community and somebody to sort of run the business of the organization and somebody who does not necessarily have hockey, hockey operations experience. Jim may report into that person, but again, that would be from a budgetary standpoint. That's not going to be on hockey decisions. I think that's more likely than not right now Um, on the ice. Well, I said earlier, Jake Vertanen's is not going to be back. However, they decide to do this, um, you know, whether it's a buyout, whether the contract is terminated because of conduct, you know, what have you. I I don't expect Jake to be back. They are going to have Vasily Podkolza next year, which is going to be, you know, a bright light that will be talked about in the lead up to the season, um, just because of where he was drafted in that 2019 draft. They're also going to have a high, you know, likely a top 10 draft pick this year. Uh, we'll find out on June the 2nd, I think is the draft lottery. The, the big one for me and and Daniel Wagner, who we've had on the show before, rightfully brought it up today. is was just the defense, you know, like everyone considering that Quinn Hughes is going to be back other than he, you know, other than that, it's, um, we've got Tyler Myers and Nate Schmidt. Like those are the only signed defensemen for next year with any experience. Um, and it's. I think it's safe to say, and Elliot basically confirmed it yesterday, that one of the players who he has heard that wants out um, may have not demanded a trade, but has indicated that he would like to be moved is Nate Schmidt. And, you know, Nate was one of the bright spots last summer, you know, picking up a top four defenseman under term for a fairly decent cap hit for only a third round pick that was seen by many as mm-hmm. some of Jim Benning's best work, you know, being in a position to take advantage of, of Vegas when they were up against it, trying to sign Angela. Now, if he wants out after only a year, um, what can you get for that asset? And also you're losing the top four defensemen where you're already thin and what can you get back in return? So I, I'm really curious to see what they do on defense. Jim Benning sort of tipped his hand today. It sounded like they really liked how Travis Hamonic came on, especially in the back half of the season with Quinn Hughes. Travis is, you know, um, wants to play in Western Canada, so there seems to be a fit there, and you know, seemed to come for a reasonable amount. Edler will be the big question. I don't know what you think. You think based they on his Edler?
1: answer today, it seems less likely then then not i i would be he, he yeah they in, would, in other instances yeah. where that question has been asked this is a question that's been asked a lot over the last few years uh whether it's are you going to trade alex edler or are you going to ask him to waive his no movement uh, are you going to resign him we've had these questions before uh the the responses were much stronger in this case i mean he jim benning just yeah. said um we haven't had our ex- exit meetings yet. I saw that he told the media that he wants to continue playing. Um, I'll talk to him, basically. So uh, not uh, you know a, a huge, yeah. uh, we need to, to bring this guy back. I think that they acknowledge that they have some, some questions on defense. And at this point in his career, Alex Edler's done a ton for this franchise. Uh, he needs to be someone that plays on a third pair. And there's some yes. complications there because – the Canucks have prospects that they want to play on their third pair. And so that's uh that's a, mm-hmm. a real question, uh, I think.
0: The the only other name at this point that it seems to the Canucks like and I think are optimistic that he can be in their starting defensive group next year is Jack Rathbone. I think, you know, while it was a small sample size, I think Jack, you know, equated himself quite well. I think the organization Uh, some good things, you know, I think that it tells you a lot though, about Ole Ulevi, you know, those, those last few games, you know, I think they're probably getting fairly close to the end of the road about seeing more upside with Ole Ulevi. I think at some point they're going to have to realize that Ulevi is likely what they are seeing. And I'm not sure that that's a regular NHL defense. That's,
1: uh, seems to be, you know, bubbling to the surface at this point as optimistic as people want to be mm-hmm. as high as they were uh, when they drafted him in the first place, uh, there has been a lot of change since then. And it's tough. It, it, it has been you know tough to watch him play.
0: Really, really quickly, I, I watched with interest the player availabilities yesterday. And for the most part, you know, I think there was a lot of anticipation, like are some of the players going to say things? I thought it was interesting that Nate Schmidt didn't talk Uh, JT Miller did not talk but I thought Bo Horvat was the one that was the most candid Um, and again Bo is you know as professional as they come but you know reading between the lines Bo was Bo had some interesting comments are those the ones that caught your attention and and what did you think of yeah he was strong I
1: think uh I think that he has proven at times as much as he might have the reputation for you know following in in line with the the Sedin's legacy of looking on the bright side and, and trying to pick up the team and maybe not stepping into it, stepping in it uh, publicly uh, from a comments perspective. Um, there are instances where he has been very strong. And this was yet another one where, look, this is a guy who's been in the league for a pretty long time now and he wants to win. I mean, that's how Travis yeah. Green put it in his availability on Friday. <laughs> Bo, the first the, that was the first thing that stood out to him, how much Bo Horvat wants to win. And uh, that's the same, same takeaway that I had, you know, he was very strong. Uh, He puts some of it on himself, but clearly sees uh, the product on the ice. The team on the ice is not, is not up to snuff and, and was not at all this year. And so it's not his job to fix that. Um, So it's, uh, it's difficult to, you know, try to pair that off with what, what can they do in the off season? But at the very least, I guess it shows an acknowledgement that, uh, It wasn't, it wasn't good enough this year.
0: No. Well, and I, I often think that Bo comes across not nearly as competitive or as sort of, um, outwardly driven and competitive as he really is. Um, I was fortunate enough to spend a little bit of time with Bo, um, and his family a couple of years ago when I was at Hockey Night in Canada. And, you know, Bo came up in the London Knights, like a winning organization. Bo had success in minor hockey, You know, Bo is used to success. He's used to sort of you know well-run organizations that are you know solely focused on winning. And you know, I think while he understood the situation he came into in Vancouver, I think the step back this year and also you know how everything was handled, I I really get the sense that Bo is frustrated with the organization. And I look at it and think he's he's 26. He's 500 games into his career. This is a guy who his His role model or his standard was Jonathan Taves. And, you know, Jonathan Taves drafted in 06, first cup in 2010, goes on to win three cups. And I think Bo was looking at it thinking he's likely halfway through his career here. And kind of like McDavid said, you know, there were comments from McDavid a couple of years ago that he's tired of this missing the playoffs thing. I I got a very similar vibe from Bo. And I think he's two years left, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and he's gonna be a UFA in two years. So I, I really think the Canucks have a couple of years here to show some hope and some direction that Bo believes in. Otherwise, I I would wonder in two years if Bo Horvat, you know, is just like, look, I'm going to go somewhere else because, you know, he's lost faith. Um, and you know, that's that'll not something to necessarily watch next year, but again. I see the older players as being the ones that were very disenchanted by the organization this year. I think some of the younger players, the core players, they haven't played in another organization. So I don't think they have any comparables, but Bo was sort of right in the middle, you know? And I think that some of the perceptions of the older players, obviously, I'll say this, down to the, um, and,
1: the, the way that the NHL works, the age gaps, the age groups, I felt like when I was growing up, you know, through the late 90s, through the 2000s, that a, a player, uh, you know, an established player could do, you know, ring chasing or cup chasing late in the career, <coughs> really late in the career. And and go to an established team after having had basically, you know, a full, <coughs> a full career. That's not the case anymore. And if they are, if it's, it's the Leafs. It's it's Jason Spezza and Joe Thornton, two guys who uh, Thornton's obviously you know, a ha- Hall of Fame slam dunk. Uh, I don't think Spezza's nearly there, but as a guy that's had a really good career for 20 years, they're playing on the minimum. So it's not like you're going to a team uh, to be the missing piece as someone who's 33, 34. That, that just does not happen in the league today. The league is younger a player like Bo Horvat is looking at that opportunity, like, oh, um, this is I'm gonna be 28 when I'm gonna sign my next contract. This is the one where I need to go. And if I want to win a Stanley Cup, and that's what these guys play for, that's when you start asking the tough questions. And that's why when you see Nate Schmidt, when you see JT Miller, they're yeah. already at that point. And it's it's that's that's just the reality of the league these days. Players age out faster they get to start younger and they make an impact younger but all that 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 finish line creeps up on them and players don't want it to creep up on them and so it makes it makes that uh it makes those decisions really difficult ones and look it's funny because we we tend to do the thing of you know if a player doesn't stick with the team that drafted them i mean even john Tavares, and you know we'll wrap up with Uh, what happened to John Tavares in game one between Montreal in Toronto, just, you know, a a horrific injury Uh, when he left the Islanders to go to Toronto. There's all this feeling, oh, you know, he he didn't finish what he started and stuff like that. And I just find it funny because when you talk about Bo Bo Horvat, sort of going, okay, I need to do something or I need to be in a situation. uh, And I think he hopes that it's in Vancouver, but where he can win. uh, The first player that came to mind was Ryan O'Reilly, who, went from Colorado to Buffalo, right. bad teams, ends up in St. Louis and has been the player <clears> that people thought that he could be. A two-way, and, and this is not comparing Bo Horvat to Ryan O'Reilly as a player. I think Ryan O'Reilly has a much stronger two-way game uh, than Bo Horvat. But that's my thought is, you know, he went to a place and um, they were able to win the Stanley Cup, which is what these guys dream about. This is what gets them up in the morning and gets them training and is is what it's it's not the only reason why they play but it's it's a big reason why they play
0: for sure well and i i think the other thing with with Horvat in general in this organization is that you know jim sort of talked about another you know top top draft pick that they're going to have this year They are getting very close to entering sort of the Edmonton Oilers Buffalo Sabres conversation, where yes, they have a lot of pieces that they can point to. But if this organization and this management group doesn't learn how to manage assets and start to move forward, then a lot of these top picks are going to just, you know, if they keep finishing in the bottom 10 of the league, at some point the players are going to say, you know, I I want out of here. And we're not there yet, but the next year or two is really going to be sort of the the period where we're going to see if this if this team starts to evolve into what they could be, what they should be, or if they continue to just spin their tires and on paper they look really good with all these high, you know, high drafted players and yet from an organizational standpoint they they just do not have any success and it's clearly a organizational culture um it's just a frustrating situation. And that's, you know, that's something that we're going to hear here going on. Um, really quickly, just before we move on from the Canucks, we'll, we'll finish up with this. Um, I tweeted on to tu- on Tuesday morning um about there was gonna be change, or I was hearing that there was there could be change later that day. And there have been a few people that have come back to me and said, Hey, what happened there? And okay. I just sort of wanted to clarify kind of sure. everything that kind of happened. Um I was at home studying. I've got an exam coming up in June. Uh, This wasn't something that I was particularly digging on. And I got a phone call from somebody who I don't hear from that often, but is very tied in um, with the organization. And basically sort of tipped me off that he was hearing from multiple people that that there was a feeling that later that day was going to be, could be when the ax fell. And I was like, okay, so... I started doing some calling. I got a sense that there were things that were, you know, decisions were being made. And I was able to confirm that there had been a meeting with the Aquilini's the day before. I wasn't able to get a second source on Jim Benning, which is why I wrote the tweet the way I did, which said, you know, hearing that changes within the Canucks could be coming as as early as later today. Um, As it turned out, those changes, I wouldn't say in concrete took place. Um, I will say I was surprised that when later that day that Jim was announced as coming back because one of the people who, you know, I think was fairly connected and he believed this, felt that Jim was out. And I think there were lots of people in the organization that felt like Jim, you know, the ax may fall on Jim, whether it happened on Tuesday or later in the week. But I do think there is still some change to come in the organization. You know, it was a couple hours later that the the word about the Sedins joining the organization came out. Um, but just to clarify in that, you know, if you read the tweet, I didn't say Jim Benning, um, because I wasn't able to confirm that, but, um, you know, there was change that was going to take place. And I said, it could take place as early as later today. And, you know, as I think has been proven, you know, out later in the week, it's been confirmed that, you know, the Aquilini's met on Monday, they made decisions. Um, they decided to not enact some of those changes. Um, some of them are still ongoing. Um, but just in the interest of full disclosure, I just wanted to be completely transparent with the audience as to, you know, why that came out, why, you know, listen, that's what I was hearing. All I did was try and share that with the people that follow me and with the audience. Um, I don't think I proclaimed that it would happen. Um, I just tried to be with what I knew. I tried to write what I could. And, um, so if, if you felt misled by that, I apologize. But I think if you look at the language of the tweet, um, It was, uh, I had, I had had to leave it somewhat open-ended or vague because I was not able to get confirmation that it was any particular individual, um, just that there there were changes coming in that they could come as early as later that afternoon. So anyway, I just had a few people reach out to me on Twitter. I didn't think Twitter was the right place to, um, try to explain all of that detail. And I just sort of said, look, I'll, I'll mention it on the podcast. I'll explain how that came to be. Um, but I will say even after that, um, I've had people reach out and say, you know, throughout the league, um, and some people, you know, around the organization that they they believe that Jim was, you know, probably in the crosshairs as well. And um yeah, so I it, it was a I mean, other people oh, talking yeah. about it. Tuesday was a fascinating oh, yeah. day. <laughs> like uh, literally, so Izzy, I gotta tell okay, you a story. I haven't it. told anybody this yet. So I had Basically, I had that tweet in the morning, which, to be honest, kicked off a bit of a firestorm. The Sedin news got dropped later. The Canucks are on the ice with the flames. And there's this sort of feeling that, like, something's going to happen. And I got a phone call from somebody in another Canadian market who is, is you know, one of the top reporters in that market. And he said that he had just received a call that had been verified by somebody else that there was somebody within the Canucks coaching staff um or in the, within the organization that was in for, that had informed their staff that morning that Jim had been let go. And so and listen like I'm not a very like I'm not that connected. So I'm like how is this if this happened this morning like how is this not out because like you know what it's like right things like sometimes news mm-hmm. gets out before players even hear it. And so I'm trying I'm like okay this seems odd but I'm trying to verify it And I'm on the phone with somebody else and they were kind of questioning it, but they were like, I think it's inevitable. And then they're like, oh, there it is. There's the Elliot tweet. And basically, we both interpreted it initially that they had just announced that Jim had been let go. Like, we thought that's what Elliot's tweet had said. And it was only after like hanging up when I reread it that it sort of said, (laughs) Jim's coming back. And the person I was calling or the person I was speaking to called me right back, like panicked. And was like, you you saw that he's actually coming back, right? And he was as stunned as I was, but it just showed you that the information that was circling around that day. And, you know, the people were thinking they were hearing things, they were seeing things. I think inevitably when I was able to track down, it was actually the staff telling them that Jim was coming back, but it had been misheard. But it just, you know, I know Drance talked about it and other people, Tuesday was just like such a crazy day for Canucks, you know, the Canucks organization information. And like I said, it was usually I'm not involved in it in any way, but, you know, um, I got caught up in a little bit of it on, on Tuesday. So um, do you want to shift to, yeah. we'll just do a real quick hit on um, some of the other organizations. Before we get to the first round of the playoffs, I, d- I did want to say this. We talked about this a little bit. I don't know your thoughts. Um, I'm putting you on the spot here. What do you think if you were covering the Calgary Flames like would you expect Jim Tr- uh, or Brad Treliving to be back based on the 7 years he's had in Calgary based on the lack of success they've had especially based on the expectations they had this year after their off season last year and I I'll pre- I'll preface this, preface it, preface this with this it is so quiet here in Calgary and I've talked to some of the reporters it is such Very a different so. market than Vancouver there is no, there is no public outrage about, you know, whether Brad should stay or go. It doesn't even seem like it's a topic of conversation. It's, it is, I, I don't think I've ever been in a market that is so, so different than Vancouver and right. yet so geographically close, you know, I mean, right now it's the closest. Anyway, I'm just curious your thoughts. Cause it's, it is just, a. I mean, I, I had said this scene here.
1: during the season. And I, I went into the season thinking the Flames would be good and, and having high expectations for them, and they did not reach those. But every time I hear Brad True Living speak, he says what I want to hear. Uh, he, he takes accountability. He seems to have a plan. Uh, he's very direct. It's the total opposite of what I hear from Jib Benning. And look, they've had pretty much the same results with the exception of Calgary's one great regular season a couple of years ago. So I understand... If you're looking at it objectively, to go well, you know something needs to something needs to be better here, uh,
0: right? Who's, who's I mean, accountable for this?
1: It's not like there's been, it's not like there hasn't been conversation about. Well, you you need to move one of the star players. There's something wrong with this core. They're missing this type of piece. And I mean, we you just said it. They went into this off season or last off season. They signed a goalie, former Canuck, for a lot of money. Uh they give a longtime Canucks defenseman a big contract. Um Kristana was one of their best players this year. Jacob Markstrom started well for Calgary, but uh once the team sort of went into the tank, I think so did his game and there was a lot of ups and downs there. Um if I was covering the team, I mean I I, I guess I would be surprised to a to a certain degree that it that he would be coming back. Um I would be I would be asking questions for sure. Um, but I can also understand why that would be the case based on, on what I just said, that there, there is a directness Mm -hmm. to his approach, at least publicly that maybe doesn't exactly line up with what we have seen in terms of moves, or at least the big move that people think that they need to make, uh, you know, trading one of trading, one of their big players, if you will.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because the more I've sort of thought about it, I agree with everything you said about, about Brad. Like I, from the outside, I, I like him. I think he does a good job of being sort of a presidential in a GM role and and saying things that, you know, and I also see why he built the team around the players he did. It, it clearly hasn't worked at this point. And I think it needs dismantling to some degree, but I guess traditionally that wouldn't, he wouldn't be allowed to dismantle what he built you know there's this sort of sense that you know the way it's usually done is he gets fired somebody else comes in they dismantle and they build their own thing but i did I, it made me think like should he be allowed to have a second chance you know on paper it made sense to build the flames out around Monaghan, Gaudreau. he added nice pieces in markstrom for whatever reason it hasn't worked and clearly it needs to change but you're right like should he not should he be allowed to deconstruct what he's built and and try something new yeah we don't usually uh, see it that's why happen, it, that's
1: why it resonates in that way
0: he, Totally. Yeah. Um, Okay, playoff hockey. Let's start with last night. Um, Were were you watching the Leaf game live and just your reaction to the John Tavares, Corey Perry incident? Um,
1: As bad as anything that I've seen happen, you know, and that's, I guess the stuff that comes to mind generally is um, guys getting cut with skates. That's the really scary stuff. And that's, the you know, about as freak accidents as it's going to get. Um, when he was, when he was trying to get up, that was, yeah, just, just stunning. Just really scary, really, really scary. Um,
0: the quiet in the building too, I think added to it because you could hear, you could hear the panic on the ice and you could, and, and as you said, John's, I don't want to say usually, but typically either the players are knocked out. Or there's, you know, I'm thinking back to Nathan Horton or, you know, Paul Correa. I'm, th- you know, I'm thinking about players on the ice and those in Steve Moore to a degree. Like there wasn't movement. Whereas you could tell John sort of came to, but was also in a very panicked state. And the way they sort of sat him up and then he kind of fell back. Like you could tell that like he, yeah, yeah, that he was in rough shape. And it was, yeah, I mean, I, the, the Leafs have released a couple of statements he today did. I think John released a statement as well he's yeah he was in hospital for the night he's been um, he's at home now uh, under the attention of of the doctors there's no indication of when he will return or what the extent of the injuries were but um yeah it was a scary scene i I did want to ask you this because I saw and I did not share them because I thought it was a bit uh, didn't think it was great, but the covers of the Toronto Sun and the Journal de Montreal today had some very, chose to go with very graphic cover images of the incident. And I know you, while it's not for a newspaper, you do a lot of editing and photo selection for the athletic. And I was just, I was interested to know if you were in that spot, sort of the rules you use, you know, how you walk that line in a, in, yeah, I you wouldn't know, for use that. Like that. Um,
1: to me, it's, it's unnecessary. I think when you're putting that stuff together, whether it's as a writer or as whether it's as an editor or you're, pa- you're packaging it together, the question that you're always asking yourself is, um, how does this serve the story? And um, in this case, the visuals, don't really they don't really add to the story. It's, it's a shock value. It's like I I go in this case, you know, pretty strongly. I I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that. Um, There are times where I believe that looks stuff happens, and you have to report. If you're in the reporting business, you have to report on it. And sometimes that's that's showing graphic and uncomfortable material. In this case, I don't think it adds to the story. I mean, if people people saw it live, and for people that didn't see it live, it's kind of unnecessary um, you know it's this is a freak accident that happened in a hockey game this is not something that goes to the highest levels of government and you know there's there's stuff that uh, you could kind of point to as to why did this happen this is literally a free play in a hockey game and there's there's no one to blame and it's it's a risk that players run by playing but um, yeah it's it's it comes down to what's the best way to convey this information and the words. In the news, I think, does more than enough and yeah, I mean, if you're watching the game live, you saw what we saw you know that that moment that you that you describe there is the one that will stick with me as well um, just the the spasming of him trying to get out I mean I was you know almost blacked out to be honest um, that was that was a really tough watch, and so <laughs> to see it on to see uh you know a pretty graphic version of that used in media is is also kind of tough to see.
0: Habs uh, take game one, two, one last night, uh, sets up a really big game two. um, Now with the Leafs without John Tavares. And according to the line rushes today at practice, it looks like Alex Gelchenyuk is going to move up into the second center uh, position uh, with Tavares out. I was thinking this even prior to the Tavares injury, just sort of in the lead up to the game last night, that there is so much sort of pressure and expectation on Toronto and this feeling like they are just going to roll through Montreal because of the season Montreal's had. And I just sort of coupled that with, you know, it's clear that the Leafs goaltending is a little bit of a shaky mix. And then you add on the other end, even though he hasn't had a great season. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the halves of carry Price, who, you know, with a flick sure. of the hands. I mean, it's funny, be right? Because uh,
1: he played really well in the postseason last year. And he yeah. has the rep uh, in those player pools. He's still picked as the scariest goalie. This season was was up and down. And even last year was not great, but he was, he looked like the guy that people perceive him to be last year in the postseason and the thought was if he gets an experienced backup he's gonna get a little bit more rest all that kind of stuff so clearly that player is still somewhere in there um he's not he's not the mvp winner that he was god i mean now i guess it's like seven years ago which is crazy to say <laughs> So it's as long as the Jim yeah. Benning era in Vancouver, <laughs> but he's still, oh. I mean, yeah. I mean, and it's, I mean, it's the goaltending position in the NHL and he's a guy that's got, uh, yeah. Has shown to in the last 15 years to have about as high a ceiling as anybody in the game.
0: Yeah. It just, it just made me feel like there was no room for error with the lease. And that just sets you up for just being in such a tough spot. And, you know, and then the Tavares thing happens, and then they lose Game One, and it just sets up what you know that Game Two. I mean, you think Toronto goes down O two? Um, oh boy, like that's for an organization that has been building and building, um, but unable to get over that first round hump. Um, yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting to watch. Um, really quickly, not I mean, maybe a series some people have been really into, but I I was stoked to see the Panthers win that in OT last night because it's been a great series to watch. I don't know if you've caught any of it, but I'm like, if Tampa goes up three, nothing, this, this series is all but done. But, you know, for one, you know, and especially go to overtime, right. One shot can go either way, but for the Panthers to make it two one, it just makes that series, keeps that series relevant, you know? And I, um, yeah, I just thought it was great. It's uh, a real nice sort of, you know, structured play off the face off with Noel Chari winning the face off in a, in a set play that set Ryan Lomberg off on, you know, a partial break and, um, yeah, yeah was huge, it for, right. For I mean, pass. that
1: first game had people's attention. Uh, it would have been a bit of a tough way to, <clears throat> if, if they had gone down three Oh, um, for that series to possibly wrap up, uh, really quickly because otherwise you know, the, the, the games, uh, in, in the other series uh, across the league have been, have been tight, uh, you know, especially that, the you know, the teams that we consider to be in the Eastern conference, uh, they may not be playing in the Eastern conference playoffs this year, but, you know, games between Boston and Washington, Pittsburgh and the Islanders, uh, the two teams in Florida, that's gotten a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's been good hockey. It's gotten a lot of people's attention and that's, uh, that's cool to see.
0: I'm just refreshing Twitter here because, um, There is going to be the hearing for Nazem Qadri this afternoon. I don't think we've had a result as of yet, uh, but they are doing a sort of an in-person Zoom hearing, I guess, which gives the NHL the ability to suspend him for five or more games. Um, First, your thoughts on the hit. And second of all, this was, you know, at the very core of the reason the Leafs shipped him out. Um, He had two first round suspensions against the Bruins which really hurt the Leafs, uh, lineup. And ultimately, you know, one of those series at least went to game seven. And I think they felt like they couldn't trust Nazem any longer. Um, they're up to nothing right now. So if they continue with a sweep and this is a, a lengthy suspension, this could really hurt the Avs if they match up against, I mean, whoever they match up against, but there's a very strong likelihood. They could get Vegas, um, their arch rival in the next round. Um, Surprise, but also your thoughts? Yeah, on the not a good hit. hit. Not
1: something that I want to see in the game.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> I I look at Kadri and uh, I lived in Toronto for a pretty good portion <clears throat> of his career with the Leafs, and have uh, followed his uh, followed his career there pretty closely. Um, less so since he's been in Colorado, but uh, for the most part, you know, has been a really contrib- contributing player for the Avs, and they have been. Really good this year, especially, but even for a big chunk of last year, they were a really good team. And you just see this happen again for him. It's just head scratching. It seems like managing is,
0: yeah, yeah, that he, yeah. Just like the playoffs, he gets ramped up what you want, but he just doesn't have the ability to sort of check those emotions. It's funny. I was watching the 30 for 30 last night, uh, Reggie Miller versus the Knicks. the, like the winning time. And he talked, and there's that whole scene about John Starks about how he was this, you know, he could be. I think one of the guys described him as a bit of a spring, like he would just, you could build him right. up, build him up, and then he would lose it, you know. And anyway, it just sort of made me think because, yeah, I mean, that was just a vicious hit. Do you remember the hit he had yep. on? I think it was Daniel Sedin in Toronto. It was a really similar hit. He kind of came from a bit of the blind side, caught him up high, you know, very similar to what he did to Justin Falk. So. You know, based on history, I mean, it will be interesting to see. You know, do they go five games or do they really throw the book at him? Do they go like 10 games or more? Um, Because, you know, he is a critical piece for that Avalanche team, and depth is so important in the playoffs. So, um, did you want to touch on any of the other series? I'll let you vamp. Let's do that. You can vamp on some golf, and then we'll wrap. Talk about the golf. Okay. (laughs) I I haven't had a chance to look, but um, Corey Connors, the Canadian. uh, first round leader at the PGA championship, which, which was awesome to see, um, had a bit of a difficult day this morning, bogeyed five of the first six holes, which, um, got off to a terrible start, but was able to sort of get it going on the back a little bit finished with a birdie. So he's two under, um, the last time I checked in Phil Mickelson, um, actually had the lead cause it was quite windy in South Carolina today. So a lot of the scores were bringing guys back to par. And, uh, Mickelson posted six under, which was four shots ahead of Corey Connors, but Corey will be in the mix, uh, headed into, you know, the weekend. And he has sort of become the, the best Canadian golfer on tour, you know, like there are other names, but Corey Connors has, has started to put himself into contention in some of the biggest tournaments. Um, he hasn't been able to bring it home yet on a Sunday, but here he, you know, he's got another chance at the PGA Championship. Um, he will be in the mix um, going into the weekend, and hopefully he can he can keep it close. But um, the only other thing was the silver lining: uh, this the Ocean Course at Kiowa Island held the PGA Championship uh, nine years ago in 2012, which Rory McIlroy ended up winning. But on Friday, Roy McElroy also had a bad round. He shot 75, which is what Corey Connors did today. And he was able to rebound. So there is some history that um, Corey can look to for a bit of hope after a tough day. But uh, anyway, yeah. you know, I like to talk a little bit of golf. That's probably what I'm, I'm going to watch this afternoon. Um, we don't really have media spotlights this week. You know, it was just it was kind of all the Canucks um, all the time. But um, anyway, that's. I think we did a pretty good job in an hour and 20 minutes of, of trying to tie up everything that, that happened. And, no, and our no, thoughts. Uh, you hope add?
1: everyone enjoys the long weekend. Weather is starting to, uh, to get nice around these parts. It's about time. Um, that's it for us. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, do subscribe. Thanks for listening. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Check us out. You're listening to the On Air podcast with Israel Fair and Alex Blair.